Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 37, Role-Playing Scenario Design. Recorded at Metatopia 2013. Presented by Kenneth Height, Darren Watts, Rob Donahue, John Stravopoulos, and Bill White. Awesome. Pour your table at home. I'm in the middle of writing scenarios. Sounds good. You've already failed. You need to go, buddy. <laughs> what about you? I'm here to figure out what to do. What I what are the essential elements I need to write a scenario for the game? Of essential elements sounds great. Um, I'd like to learn about scenario design as a way to like articulate what a game is about. Awesome. And awesome. your bag is awesome. I just want to say that. <laughs> designing. I want to learn about designing scenarios with hooks for with hooks that characters care about when you don't know who those characters are. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. Oh, look at the guys on the panel. I miss them talking about anything. <laughs> uh, well, that, I'm sure they like to hear that. <laughs> I'm more interested in scenario design for one-shots. Awesome. Okay. Uh, and actually, very much the same scenario design for one-shots. Just concise, clear, concise. Get the focus, concise, awesome. <laughs> I'm actually more interested, oddly enough, in the office direction scenario design, which has more term settings and Sure, sounds good. Okay. We'll pull back. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. Awesome. You're the moderator. Awful. I'm, uh, asking, okay, no. I'm <laughs> just asking if it makes sense. Okay, so really quick, uh, let's start off with some quick problems. Okay. Number one problem, each of you get to say number one problem with scenario design. You start. Number one problem with scenario design is that designing scenario for publication is the opposite of designing a scenario for your group at home. They are require different skills, they require different approaches, and trying to do them the same way is going to just make you hate yourself. Right. I want. I thought what she said was perfect. The idea of like, um, the hardest part of scenario design is creating the scenario that shows off what the game is about, what the game is good at, why it is you're playing this game in the first place, as opposed to all of the other games for it. To to be able to kind of uh, consolidate all of that into you know like your first sample adventure of what it is that uh, we mean for you to do with the game. So scenario design as teaching tool and as demonstration tool of what this game is for and about. Awesome. Uh, the hardest part about scenario design is finding and walking uh, the line of constraint in any individual scenario, which is the point at which the scenario stops being a scenario and becomes a bunch of notes about where the scenario is happening versus the point where the scenario stops being a scenario and starts being a short story that the characters happen to be in. Um, so you, you, your scenario is either literally a... Um, uh, a series of encounters with no possible change, or it is an amorphous morass of things that might happen. And a good scenario has to be between those things because it can't be one or the other. Yeah. And the trouble is, those lines keep moving. You can't just say, I know where the line is, I've found it, I'm done, because every individual, not, every, not just every individual game, but every individual scenario has to set that middle ground somewhere else. And this is why the dungeon is such persistent technology. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The thing I was going to say is very similar to what uh, Ken said, in that um, the hardest part about scenario design is that players will always do things that you did not think of, uh, and um, there's only so many times you can say, as the designer writing for somebody else, and for somebody else to run, you know, oh, just hand wave this, right? And so at some point they say, and I paid fourteen ninety five for this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. that's yeah. the thing for the right. art. And so, right? And so, and so well, you couldn't have thought of ten orcs. There's <laughs> right. So, there's, so, so there's there's a certain point at which the the value that you add as the scenario designer uh, has 
has to be more than uh, come up with something, right? You'll come up with something. Uh, we're saying to the guy running it, and that's that's the hardest part is is what is the what is the essence of what you as the designer are providing to the person running it. Now that's different, you know, if you're designing a scenario for your own, you know, for your own players, for your own table. Um, but if you're and and it's it's different, uh, you know, if you're even as even if designing a one shot because you can imagine, oh yeah, I'm gonna. Um, this happens. I can hand wave this. I know what's going to happen. But if you're designing, you're writing something, and you want somebody else to be able to run it, um, like a lot of times I've gotten feedback that's like, well, what do I do in this circumstance? There's no provision for this. And I was like, well, shit. You know, that's because you suck. Um, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> well, right. that's just me. But I didn't say, you know. So yeah. here, again, so hard to get someone to pay fourteen ninety five for this. For, you, right. you suck. Yeah, exactly. It varies typefaces and sizes. So here, if you can find that guy, you know I've got some milk here. I can solve. So here's here's the deal. We're not just here to present problems. We're here to solve them. Solve them. So how about we go around? We'll start Bill. We'll okay. work backwards. Let's hit Bill's problem and let's have everyone speak to it. So right. Bill, no pressure. All right. Well, you know how I solve my own problem. How I solve my own problem. And I was telling Rob this earlier is is uh, iterative. Design, which you know, which means uh, you do it once. You see what players do. You uh, figure out how uh, you figure out how to respond to that, how to prepare for that, and uh, then you run it again and you see whether your preparation, in fact, meets the contingencies of player action. That means, right, that that's good for one shots, right? That's great for one shots because you run it over and over again until you pretty much know what players are going to do. Uh, it's bad for at your own table or for extended sorts of designs where you've got to get it right the first time, right? Because you only get one chance. But that's that's how I solve my own problem. Absolutely. Sounds good. Um, my way to solve Bill's problem is uh, hilariously sort of the other direction. Okay. Because this is for longer term or publication <laughs> type scenarios, uh, especially for longer term stuff that's uh, buried into an existing setting with its own logic, is the ticking clock. Right is the the bad guy always gets a vote. Uh, so, um, if regardless of what the players do, they might do all kinds of crazy things. They would know we're going to go burgle the police station. Whatever they're doing, fine. The, ideally, the game is robust enough that the GM knows what happens when you try and burgle a police station. But the scenario, the story, does not depend on the players because the whole right. reason they're there is that there is a problem or a crisis or an emergency or everyone is turning into mushrooms, and the cause of that is still working. It didn't, you know, say, right? I'm gonna, you know, kill uh, you know, the the um, uh, the, the, the mayor's daughter, and then that's it. That's the end of my plan. I've accomplished everything. That's not a scenario, right? Because if all you're trying to do is stop the mayor, well, she died at the beginning. That's too late. You got to find that bad guy, and that bad guy is still doing stuff. So whatever the, the players are doing, that bad guy is still driving the story, and that works really well in long-term campaigns. Because you can literally then waste the whole rest of the night with them burgling the police station, even though that's pointless, because you know that next week they're going to come back and that bad guy will have killed another mayor's daughter or the uh, selectman's daughter or right. the sanitation engineer. You know, some, some person in the city is going to be daughterless next session and they're going to what the hell, burgling the police station didn't fix that? And eventually they will work their way back around to stopping the actual problem. And they may be doing it from an angle you had never considered, but because you always have something to do next, the scenario can drive. So when I'm writing a scenario for publication, especially one that is part of the world, I try uh, to figure out what happens if they do nothing, which is functionally the same as the wrong thing. And the answer is, because I write horror games, things get horribly worse. And ideally, it doesn't take that much longer, 
Or, and if you if you can't do it as a villain motive, you can do it as a ticking clock. If you don't do this, then you know someone's going to open the Necronomicon at midnight on Walpurgis Night, and the world will end. So you, you know, clock. She's a ticking. Clock. She's a ticking. Right. And the clock is always ticking for something. Yeah. For, for something that was going on. Whether it's the villain is going to get to the next stage of his plan, or you know the innocent is going to do something stupid, or you're trapped in a you know location and you're going to starve. You know, if you don't get out of this, or some other terrible thing is going to happen to you that isn't even necessarily villain-driven, but it's environment-driven, or that there is always something kind of like pushing you forward, so that the as as Ken says, so that you have the players have the freedom to handle it in whatever way they want, in whatever order they want, but there is always something that uh, is is pushing the story itself farther, and will hopefully at some point, as he says, if they wander off somewhere, it will draw them back. To oh this was what this was actually about in the first place. This is the story that we actually wanted to tell, and you just happened to insert a sidebar about burgling the police station that you know I I didn't really want, but okay that was an amusing night of doing that. Now let's get back to the actual story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I will actually go to the flip side of that because that that runaway train is critical, but only if I give a crap. Uh, right. The it, and this is not just about setting stakes. Um, it is great to threaten the world, and that works in a, in a tight, constrained space, but it is actually very hard to get emotionally invested in the world. Um, I actually like to focus on very petty stakes, um, on things that make people mad and get them emotionally engaged and just piss them off. And if you want to do that in adventure design, all you have to do is mimic the Internet for a little bit, and it tends to work really well. Um, so you need to have that, this is going to happen, where can I find people who are getting mad over nothing? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So you need to have that thing that's happening so you know how things are going to unfold one way or another, and then you need to have a reason why the player's response is not to go off to Havana. So I I had two things. Uh, The one is uh, to kind of solve some of what you're saying, right, to get what you're interested in and some of the solutions presented here, is you could have hooks in which the characters are personally involved in the events that are happening, that you all decide beforehand. So essentially, they have different ways of opting in to this scenario. Uh, the other thing, which uh, I don't think is very popular, but uh, it works for me when I run games, is I just tell people what the limitations are of the scenario. So I say, okay, you're here to do this thing, and it's in this big box. You cannot leave this town. If you, tr- I'm telling you as players, I'm not talking to your characters... If you leave this place, that means that you've insulted me as a person, and you could leave this table. Uh, so, if well, the most important sentence, if you do that, is "Tell me why." Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, your players are creative, and if you say to them, "This is a scenario we are breaking into the bank. We need to get this out by midnight. Why do you care?" And you can help them, and you can give them hooks, and you can give them reasons. But if you're going to impose a constraint like that, that heavy-handedly, then you must also get their input to get their buy-in. Right. Totally, yeah, and so, that's once again that's a, that's a difference between designing something for a group of players that you know when you have those hooks already to hand, and hopefully at some right. point you've like you know gone through that creation process with them. When you are writing for complete strangers, that process of like figuring out what those hooks are going to be and leaving spaces, you know, in your game for the for the the players that you don't know to get involved in that. Yeah. That usually involves. Once again, kind of like going back to what what's the core activity of the game? Why did they pick this game as opposed to something else to play? And making those hooks available for the most common, the most interesting, the most popular 
core reasons for playing that game in the first place. You know, if, if you're designing a scenario for Call of Cthulhu or something like that, or the Trail of Cthulhu for it, you know, then you have some ideas of like the kinds of stories that the game is designed to tell, and that makes concentrating on those makes making those hooks easier to find and more kind of like broadly applicable yeah. across a population of people you don't know. There was there was a classic thing that happened in what seemed like about every other Call of Cthulhu scenario for about 15 years. It's called the Your Uncle Has Died. Right. Uh, scenario, <laughs> in which your uncle, who you never knew anything about until we sat down tonight, right. has died. <laughs> and But before you can process your grief, you are taken to his haunted mansion or <laughs> right. haunted the reading of the will, uh, the, funeral the, home yeah. or haunted boat or haunted whatever. And, and it, it's fine once, right? Everyone is willing, all right, fine. My Uncle we'll Trevor, I feel yeah, terrible sure. about I'll, I'll go with that. That's something that the players will buy into. The second and third and fifth time, yeah. no, they will yeah. stop buying into it because it becomes hilarious. <laughs> and so that is, I guess, um, if, we're, if we're solving uh, problems out of order, I guess that's the, the question that Rob has is how do you build those hooks in for people who aren't the guys at your table? And... When, when you say, find something that uh, will appeal to the players without knowing who the players are, which is what happens with a published scenario, mm-hmm. you have to appeal to universals. And those universals have to be greed or fear. I, I have found it very difficult. Or pettiness. To, pet, yeah. <laughs> hard, to, hard to make something petty and impersonal. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the reason that you right. are so exercised about that being the wrong breed of dog in that one scene in the notebook is because you are that kind of petty person. Yeah, but if I suggest you're not that smart, I mean, to anyone in the RPG industry, that is something that gets a pretty visceral response. If you suggest that I'm not that smart? Whoever. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> a response of howls of laughter. But the... Um, uh, in the scenario, you yes, mean? If like someone you is, if someone is clearly trying to... No, you start out by someone clearly trying to take advantage of them. Right, okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that well, right, and, and, and or manipulating yeah. them. So, really. so right. feed and greer, uh, feed and greer, feed and greer, greed and greer as 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 like setups. Anything that kind of like encourages competition, because the you know the players have come to play a game, uh, you know, whatever level of you know story game this might be, or however much the the scenario might resolve on die rolling for it, they are still they're here to play a game, and so presenting them with a challenge. Either interparty or, like you said, somebody outside of the of the group who you know is presenting them with that challenge to compete yeah. with. And I would even make that like a principle of scenario design. Right? right. Start with a strong initial situation to which characters must respond or react. Right. I mean, that's right. that's the or uh, the, the very least will really want to respond. Well, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and so you know the. Um, the technology of uh, bangs and kickers, right? Mm-hmm. The notion of building that into the characters, uh, which is just a term meaning um, a bang is just a, um, a thing that to which characters must respond to, right? That you present, right? Uh, the scenario, the scenario runner, right? Presents that. Boom! This happens. What do you do? Um, you know. So in this scenario that I wrote, uh, Castle Bravo, um, you're on the deck of an aircraft carrier. Adam bomb goes off. People start acting weird. People are running around, and uh, Fallout is falling down on you. Joanne, you played in this, right? Yeah. What do you do? Do you rescue your friends who are on the deck, or do you seek shelter from the Fallout that you know is? Well, and that's that's you? the one one catch that is uh, give an impetus, but also give a clear path of action. Right, right. Well, right, when well, you're when you're working with a game like that's as, as designed as well as Trail of Cthulhu, you have something in them. Like even even if you don't know the characters, you know that part of the character building process was 
what are the drives that right, make you right, right. get involved in stories in the first place. So you can, to a certain extent, write generically towards those. You can always have a section in it saying, yeah. characters who have the drive of thus and so may be interested in but again, know, this even portion then, of Even the then, all drives do in Trail of Cthulhu is make explicit what Call of Cthulhu makes implicit. Right. Call sure. of Cthulhu says, if you're the kind of person who but doesn't want to investigate horror... Don't play a game in which the characters are called investigators and there's tentacles on the counter. Right. 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 Stay focused on a principle. All we do is, is make it more principle. Stay focused on principle. If the game does yeah. not make that explicit, then you look in the game for what the implicit choices are. Right, yeah. Right. And you say, okay, right. characters are probably playing this superhero game because they want to smash evil and beat up bad guys yeah. and right. do whatever yeah. kind Which of is why you don't make sure to... Right. Do not subvert in a one-shot. Yes. Um, I one of the or very the, first Cthulhu or, adventures or I the ever introduction. Well, <laughs> one of the very first Cthulhu adventures I ever played in was the one in which none of the horrors are actually Cthulhu stuff. Um, it's the adventure is entirely designed around you know there's actually an ape in the forest and there's some poisonous gas from a thing so all these mysterious things actually have legitimate explanations and that would have been a great scenario if I had been playing Call of Cthulhu for years but having never played Call of Cthulhu I looked for rational explanations, which were there. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, and so this actually ties in... to find them. <laughs> and this ties into uh, the problem that you brought up, which is how to reinforce the theme right. uh, of the game in a one-shot or introductory adventure so people get that, right? Which is not what exactly. you want to do. With it. Exactly. Uh, really quick, I want to add, uh, in terms of, like, hooks as far as like characters getting involved in scenarios you don't know who the players are going to be so it's hard to know what they're invested in or who their characters are and so on and so forth uh there's the you know like your uncle's dead kind of thing a lot of tv shows what they do and and people do this in games as well is when you're introducing material that has not been introduced before right like you have an uncle what i did okay um what you can do is you can have flashbacks Right? Like, you don't have to do things in linear order. It depends on the game you're playing, depends on the style. But you can do flashbacks, you can build investment retroactively, and it can be fun to play with when you know where you're going. So let's talk about right, exactly. how exactly. To... I, 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 my first thing I've heard about my uncle is that he's dead, but now we're going to do a scene about yeah. like my relationship with him when he was alive. Like, why and, would I care about it? Right, and while I'm doing that, I can, you know, like, lay down some foreshadowing of... You know, oh well, this is going to be really awkward once he's dead. You know, <laughs> in in the next few minutes, when I suddenly like learn that, that's going to be really awful for this character or whatever. Totally so, right, dramatic yeah. irony. Yep. Right. So uh, let's talk about getting the theme into that one shot or into that introductory adventure. Boy, that that, one's, that one is either very easy or very hard, unfortunately. Yeah, um, because well, because if the theme is very obvious to you, then. It's pretty easy to say, all right, well, these are the notes that I'm going to hit. Here are, I need tentacles and eldritch tomes and dark places and cultists and awesome. And then I can hit those notes and I know what to throw into my scenario. Uh, But if my Dogs in the Vineyard, which is this brilliant, wonderful game that's very strictly structured, until you actually kind of have a sense of what it's about, it's very easy to just not reinforce anything in particular and just sort of have a town that's got problems but doesn't do anything. So I don't know if, they, I, if this is one of those areas where your own level of knowledge is the best yardstick, um, because at least hopefully in theory, the better you know the game, the better you understand what makes the theme tick. Although I mean that can trip you up. It tripped me up in Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, I think that the broader, I mean, plenty of people liked the Kingsbury Horror, which was the introductory scenario in Trail of Cthulhu. But when I wrote it, I wrote it from a place of such familiarity with Call of Cthulhu 
right. and yeah. such familiarity with Cthulhu adventuring yeah. that to me the core activity of Cthulhu is being weirded the crap out. And I had forgotten that for the first time you play Cthulhu, and it's still Cthulhu, it wasn't, yeah. there's, it's not a monkey that's doing the killing, it's actually right. yogg Sothoth, basically. Um, but, the, uh, but the first time you do it, no, you want a dead uncle and a haunted house, and yep. you want a, a, a tome and guys in hoods, and you sort of want the more standard exactly. horror that you then blow up into Cthulhu horror. And what I presented was sort of like the um, uh, the, the last the, the, uh, an adventure that happens much later in, in someone's, Cthulhu, someone's experience. Uh, yeah. Experience. Let's zoom in on what you just said really quick because it's really important, I think, to where a lot of people are coming from, which is a lot of people are going to be very close to material because theoretically a lot of people are designing the games that they're writing these stories for. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is crucial to the folks here. So they need to take a step back mm-hmm. and, and not make that kind of mistake. Right. Yeah. right. Don't be too ahead. clever. Right. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, go ahead and be too clever, but the thing is... Don't be worried about being too obvious, is, I think, a yes, better piece of right. Well, also, and be aware yeah. whether you're writing the introductory scenario or whether you're writing a scenario that is clearly designed to be played by people who already know what they're doing. This is, yeah. you know, this is the fourth book down the line or whatever, and you're, you know, doing, well, and, now doing a trailer. And if you're too worried, you're worried that it's not going to be sophisticated enough for a sophisticated audience, then realize that it's also a Rosetta Stone for your mm-hmm. game. Someone right. who knows Cthulhu very well might see an introductory adventure and go, well, I'd never run this because my, I, my group table is already too far along for this, but this at least gives me a sense of how this game yeah. approaches it. Right. I was going to say, uh, just agreeing, a, a thing that uh, uh, my brother and I always say when we talk about designing adventures is subtlety is never your friend. Like, <laughs> yeah. Subtlety is not your friend. Yep. Uh, and so um, making the beats obvious and, 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 and thinking about the tropes that is the color that uh, people expect and that you want to see in this game, whether it's like if it's pulp action, well then there got to be fists of flying and, and maybe flying apes. I mean, whatever what, what, whatever people expect, you should provide and provide it fairly obviously, right? And, yeah, so, mm-hmm. and so villains need to cackle and... Um, uh, and again, this is all terrible sense. advice for you, sir, who wants to run stuff at your table for your group. I mean, we're, right. we're it's all, like, Rob's point at the beginning of this is, is so solid that literally they're not just yeah. different, but opposite activities. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Every problem that you solve for a unknown audience for publication is a problem you have made worse for your home group, assuming you've played with them for any length of time and know them. Obviously, yeah. if this is the first time you've all gotten together, that's sort of like a new published audience. Right. But everything that the, 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 the bill is saying suddenly doesn't pay off. Uh, suddenly doesn't pay off. You want everything to be obvious and, and hit up front. If you do that at your home table, your home players are going to be, oh come on, seriously, another Zeppelin chase? Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, to, to, to to jump on that, uh, like I know that uh, Paizo with Pathfinder, uh, they have to hire a lot of people to do adventure design because that's a huge core of their uh, products. And so just like uh, there's writing style guides and art style guides, there's scenario style guides, mm-hmm. right? So there's scenario style guides say, uh, make sure that the adventures include, like, 20% of these options so that you don't have to include everything, otherwise it becomes too obvious. Uh, do ne- Never do this, right? Don't do these things. Uh, and what you could do, you could actually take that from a, play, a home group perspective and you could create a style guide for your players because you actually know who your players are. And depending on the kind of group you're in, you could even show your players that style guide and say, here are the kind of things I think that you know we're doing and that people enjoy and excite and vary that up. So there, sometimes there are techniques you right. can borrow and, yeah. and fudge, but you have to know that 
they, these are different activities, different goals. Sure. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, I mean, I think I think there are ways that you can sort of f finesse that difference or think about, you know, principles of scenario design more broadly, right? And so the thing about a home group is you know the characters, right? You know the players, you know the characters, and you know um, you know what drives them. And so you can design specifically to to you know push their buttons and things like that. And now um, translating that or trying to bring that back to uh, con design, con scenario design, and things like that. Well. You know that's why pregens um, are actually a pretty good, a pretty good yeah. technique because you can build in uh, right. the kickers, right? You right. can build in the why these characters care, and uh, I mean, so um, so one of the principal scenario design that I was thinking of was, um, you know, uh, give and we've already said this, right? Give characters a reason to care. Well, if you're designing the characters and you're handing them out, um, then. Uh, then they've already have this built-in reason to care, uh, and you know things that they. And so the way that I think of it is, um, characters should want something, right? Characters should want something, and so you can do that. Um, and the uh, uh, the essence of that is, we, we talked about fear and greed, uh, but also uh, Rob, you mentioned uh, you know uh, if somebody comes in and punches you in the face, well then you've got a cause for action, right? There's, you're going to do something. So the send in the ninjas rule, and I but I always find I always find that um, players don't like just to be like randomly attacked, right? <laughs> you know? I don't like that. Yeah. As I don't like that. Just in their normal life. No, 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 right, 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 right. You know what I'm saying? Players don't like when their characters are, are randomly attacked by just like hoodlums on the street. They don't like that, right? I mean, you, uh, oh well, I'm just trying to show you that it's a dangerous world, and so there's thugs, but they're just randomly attacking you. No, 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 no. Those thugs have a reason to be there. The thing that they want from the character. The wandering the character monster is way. a strong piece of technology. It's, yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah. have a role yeah. in a scenario. Yeah, no, 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 sure. But even a wandering monster has a reason why he or she is there. Well, the thugs had a reason to be there. They wanted to get wallets. Well, so let's go back for a second. Player, yeah, but players don't like that. There should be some connection to the. Yeah. So, so let's let's use that as a launcher pad. Uh, Sue, we talked about like common problems and ways to address that. Let's talk about when you guys write a scenario, yes. right? Uh, like, think about the three things that are important to you when you sit down. Like, I need to nail these things to make this happen. You have a blank piece of paper in front of you. You know, you know the game, and you know what you want the game to communicate, right? It's an introductory adventure. If it's Cthulhu, it's going to have these themes. But having that, what do you do? Okay, so I want the three Ds. I want a desire, I want a disruption, and I want a direction. I want desire. The players need to want something. There needs to be something that is motivating them. Greed is the great classic. Fear is a great classic in this. That Whatever it is, they need to want something that is motivating them to move forward. There needs to be a disruption, something that is keeping them from getting that. The first question you need to ask if you've got adventurers is, hey, these guys are badass, they're awesome, they've got all these things, why aren't they rich? Um, why do they not already have the thing that they want? What is the, what is the thing that's messing with that? And then direction, okay, now what can they do about it? You don't want to just throw up obstacles and say, well, blank slate, figure something out. Those are the three things I want to put into any adventure, and this is publisher otherwise. Yeah. Awesome. And, and obviously there's going to be overlaps, so if there are things that other people said, feel free to add additional things. Sure. I, right now, usually have it fairly easy when I'm, when I'm doing that sort of thing because what I'm writing these days is Silver Age Superheroes. <laughs> and Silver Age Superheroes are the most reactive bunch yes. of people. I mean, they, they do nothing. They sit around in their headquarters waiting for crimes. The trouble alert! Part. <laughs> so, exactly. Which, you know, which is you know, tremendous for scenario design because I can concentrate completely on what the bad guys are up to and make that as outrageous as possible. Yes. And, like, something that's really interesting for them to sink their teeth into. But the story always begins with... 
you know, you are sitting around your headquarters or something, you know, to, to uh, you know, waiting for the trouble alert to go off when you hear what Brainiac is up to and he's doing something crazy. Now, the thing that we have, that I've started to do or that I've started to realize is how much of Silver Age uh, storytelling for this um, was also facing, like, the comic writers were facing that problem for it as well. <laughs> and so the number of uh, kind of, like, sub-genres to it uh, kind of were their presentation of, of like how the writers solved that problem. Like the Fantastic Four were not reactive. You know, the Fantastic Four actually were trying to do things. You could always begin a story with, well, Mr. Fantastic is hanging out in his lab and he's accidentally discovered the negative zone and now we have to like go in there and explore it. Suddenly, like, you know, even Superman though it's... Superman is judging a beauty contest. Right, yeah, exactly. There is something else that they're going on. Say, on some level, <laughs> there, is, there is an activity that they are doing that like fills like their time. And so... With pretty much every scenario, every game that you sit down with, the first thing you kind of have to decide is, what do the characters do all day, ordinarily? What is their regular life like, so that you can then throw in this disruption, because that becomes the story. And if their you know, lives are as simple as, well, we sit around the headquarters drinking coffee until the trouble alert goes off, well, okay, now that suddenly becomes a thing that you can play with. Spoke now now you... Right, exactly. Now, okay... So, like, what's it like in the headquarters there? Yeah. What's, you know, when the trouble alert doesn't go off, what do you do all day? You know, what if some, like, <laughs> That's a riveting scenario, <laughs> But it's, it's an entry into the scenario, is the point. It's that like, you're, like, playing with their expectation that, you know, that this is, you know, shouldn't... Not a dream, happen. not an imaginary story. <laughs> exactly. Just right. a dull day at Justice League headquarters. Oh, my God. Okay. okay. Yes, the Campbellian be... hero myth begins with the daylight world. Right, right. Yeah. So that's... That was a good save. Exactly. Good save. Yeah. 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 Right. Talking about so, the Monday morning. Um, for, for, for me, uh, the thing that a published scenario has to hit the, the the if I'm writing it anyway, it has to have a reason for existing. Right? There has to be, and obviously structurally, you you want to go with what Rob's saying. You need a, a way in. You need a problem to solve, and you need a way back out. Right? Because otherwise, <laughs> you're dead, <laughs> which is great, but not really useful. Um, but it, there has to be a reason, when I'm writing a scenario, there has to be a reason that I'm writing the scenario and that someone is playing the scenario I wrote instead of the one that they theoretically could have made up out of the book, right? The reason that I'm presenting this scenario is because I have special knowledge of X or because I have an interest in sure. Y or because I have seen Uzumaki and they haven't. And so I am taking this outside ball of stuff, these influences, this information, this a way of looking at the universe, and I am trying to put it into the scenario. And to the degree that the scenario could only have been written by me is the degree to which the scenario I consider to be a successful scenario. Because anyone can play a number of scenarios that are identical, that are just come up with, you know, using the box of tropes out of the book. Robes, tomes, tentacles, house, dead uncle, boom, go. Anyone can play scenarios that they've made up, right? And then those are purely out of the GM's mind, and those are going to be really, really satisfying because they're coming out of, out of her mind, and the players are responding to her in a way that we respond to our friends and we don't respond to strangers on the Internet. Um, and so if I'm writing a scenario, it has to have something out of my uh, wheelhouse that I'm putting into the scenario because otherwise no one, no one would have a reason to buy it. I'm not going to be, you know, telling you you have to give me money to say dead uncle, tentacles, house, blah. And I think that was my problem with that introductory scenario in Trail of Cthulhu was because I thought, well, this has to feel like Ken more than I thought this has to feel like introductory Trail of Cthulhu. Right. But all of my scenarios have to feel like Ken because otherwise 
why am I writing them, first of all? Right. Because it's no, no, not much more fun for me to write Tentacles, Hood, Tome, House, Dead Uncle, than it is for someone else to play it. And uh, so I have to say, i got to put a spin on that. i got to do something. i got to make something interesting about this house. I have to use you know, architecture. I have to use something that is going to... And what that turns out to be, when I take it away from my monstrous ego, is that adds verisimilitude and a sense of something else is happening outside the hermetically sealed world of our adventure, which then makes the world feel real, which makes the adventure feel real. Right. Right? If you're watching a movie and you literally think that when the camera isn't pointed right at Bruce Willis, the world is dead, the movie has failed. It's when you're pointing the camera at Bruce Willis and something tells you, no, right over here, there's other stuff going on. Either this movie is having a larger ramification of the outside world or something from outside could be coming in at any moment and mixing it up. That is interesting, creative story, right? right? And that is what you want to do, I think, in this most interesting and creative of story forms, the role-playing game, because it is literally the only session where you don't have to worry about who you're casting to come in to Bruce Willis' scene, because you can just put him in, right? <coughs> it, can be a, it can be Godzilla, you don't have to pay any licensing <laughs> rights, it can be you know, Bridget Fonda, you don't have to worry if she's overseas, it's anything you want, can show up, and in a world that you're selling to someone in a world that you're designing, you have to make it feel to the players like they're playing in a world as opposed to playing in a, a um, uh, just a set of uh, moderately amusing puzzles. Right. Awesome. As a, as a uh, designer, you have to remember that like everything that you're doing in this scenario creation is in service to that GM. Yeah. Whoever that is, for you're yeah. making his job easier, her job easier, and if you are, you, if you're both, if you're doing the designing for something that you are then going to take to the table, that's easy to remember. But yeah. when you're doing, you know, as a writer, you always have to say, how exactly is what I'm putting in this scenario going to make that GM's life easier when she sits down to actually play this game? Is it that I'm providing some information that she didn't have? Is it that I'm structuring something interestingly that she might not have thought of? I mean, like this, there's. Yeah. A number of ways in which I can make her job both easier and more interesting, as opposed to just statting out all the bad guys. Right, exactly. Which is, well, which is also a thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, 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 I'm doing, I'm making the stats I think work. it's my turn. I think it's Phil's turn. Yeah, I'm I'm saying, it's because you're sitting on the floor another day. Yeah, I know. Yeah. They're a higher status. Exactly. You need to climb up and take it's, that it's, status. It's quite clear. All right. Yeah. That's something I want to say. All right. Um, get behind these guys. Something I want to say. Come over here. I don't think this is. I mean, it's sort of emerging what other people have said, but I think this needs to be said on its own. I want a sense of what the climactic final encounter is, right? We talked about the, you know, starting strong and having a good sort of situation, but I want to know as the designer, right, uh, um, like what a, uh, what to build towards, right? So Ken mentioned Godzilla, right? So there's mm-hmm. an adventure, there's a uh, um, Spirit of the Century adventure that my brother and I have run, uh, which uh, the characters are the Yangtze Rocket Patrol and they have rocket packs and they're soldiers in 1930s uh, China and they follow uh, a mystery and they wind up on Toho Island and um, the Japanese scientists there push a button or don't push a button or, you know, we, somehow we get the players to push the button um, and then the volcano erupts and Godzilla comes out, you know, and that's, and that's the climactic final encounter which is about you know, the players reacting to the fact that there's a giant lizard uh, on on the table there in right. front of them, right? right? You know, and so uh, and so I want to sense what is that climactic final encounter, and it, and it doesn't have to be a big boss fight, uh, in a, but in a Cthulhu adventure, uh, it should be Yog Sothoth shows up, right? Who's who has said that, right? The idea that um, if you don't do things right, um, or even if you do, 
Yog Sothoth shows up and, and brains get eaten. I mean, that's well. I mean, you know, the, I want a sense of. of, of I mean, that. That, the, the the notion of having a climax to build to. I don't think it has to be big. It just has to be uh, climactic, right? It, it has to be so, a, yes. a moment of climax, and the moment of climax might simply be you discover that you're a robot or whatever, and that's the that's what's going to happen at the end of the scene. One of the players will discover they're a robot, and no one's going to break in and, and take them off to robot jail or whatever else. It's just an entirely interior moment, but you have to know that the scenario is going to lead to that and lead and have, up to it. You know all the literary and gaming yep. tactics, foreshadowing, and everything else, so that when it happens, it ha- has an emotional payoff. As in, awesome. Do robots have powers? Yep. <laughs> now, and here's, and here's a cynical bit. And this is this is most applicable to one shots. Your clothes is the most important thing. The impression that people are going to walk away with is shaped more by the clothes than anything else. This yeah. isn't just style. This is psychology. If I give you a candy bar and a little piece of gum, you are going to be less happy than if I gave you a candy bar. Um, even though you're getting more, because the gum is a letdown, we weight things by how they end. It's just one of those stupid things the brain does. So make sure your clothes, for one shot especially, is awesome. So, like, in terms of... Uh uh, running games at conventions, right? You're trying to demo your game and so on and so forth. Uh, this might not apply as much to like the pu- published material. Uh, well, and definitely what Rob said, right? I found that someone literally could have a terrible time for two hours, and the last ten minutes was awesome, and they forgot about everything that came before. And the opposite, where they were having a great time, and there's just one little t- detail didn't go their way, and they're like, "That sucked." And you're like, "I have a recording. You were laughing. You had a good time." So what I will do at cons, just so that they can leave, uh, leave happy, is I let everyone do an epilogue, and I like the game is over, and then I turn to everyone, I'm like, okay, tell me what happens with your character. Yeah, you're dead. What happens with your family, or are you dead? I don't know. And I tell them, one second in the future, ten minutes, ten years, a century. I don't care. Tell me what happened. And the, you know, you got two minutes. No rolling. Just tell me. And then everyone goes around, they say these things, it's and all these things are in the back of their mind that they had, and they're like, I got to say it, and I have an audience. And then they're like, I'm so cool, this game is cool, and they leave. And it's great. <laughs> it's shameless, but we're okay with that. Right. So that's more how to con people into buying your game. That's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's go to questions. Actually, uh, that what Ken just said is is not just flip. It, it's scenario design can be a really good marketing. Yes. Oh, yeah. Totally. Absolutely. For showcasing what is cool about this game, right? It's, it's almost necessary to it. To yeah. What, how do you how, advice for designing a game that shows off? what's awesome about, or designing a scenario to show up what's awesome about your game. Um, I, I think that that is very, very close to uh, one-shots and con games. Yeah. That those are the same goals, right? The, the con game, in theory, is to show how you, the GM, are awesome, or maybe just to provide two to four hours of strong play. That's almost the same agenda you have as a designer, right? Is to make the, the experience awesome. And I think that the best thing you can do for that is to strip it down to one core great experience and don't try and put too much into it, right? If your strong sell is, this game is steak, don't load them up with the salad, right? Don't fill up on salad before you get to the steak. I I ran Call of Cthulhu for forever when I was uh, volunteering for Chaosium at Gen Con back in Milwaukee, and they'd dump you like cordwood into the Hotel Wisconsin and they'd give you a terrible pizza, but your, your con was free as long as you didn't ever want to eat food, 
Um, and you, all you had to do was just run Call of Cthulhu all weekend, which to me is like, I don't understand the downside of this. And I ran a lot of Cthulhu adventures, and I ran the same adventure over and over, and then I realized that my adventure, because it was a classic Lovecraftian slow build, oh my god, things are getting creepier, 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 finally the horror happens, I was cheating everyone out of what they were waiting for. Right? The, the scenario, because it had the slow build, it was selling... Too much, too many of the side dishes and, and salad. The steak waited until the very last minute. Now that meant they were leaving happy, like sure. you said. But it was but, Cthulhu, a game but of was, patience. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a game of waiting for the monster to show up. <laughs> so in so in the scenario that I started next, I started in media stress. You are uh, brigands. You are hijacking an archaeological dig in Afghanistan. Uh, sadly, you have put a, a anti-material rifle bullet through the engine block of the truck you were planning to drive things out with. Now you've got to leave with this giant, awesome gold statue. Now, the players, of course, all know, oh yeah, it's a gold statue. That's probably harmless. But they're <laughs> here to play Call of Duty. So they, will, they, they, they spend 30 minutes or so killing themselves, figuring out how to get a gold statue out of Afghanistan. And then, of course, go figure! <laughs> Yaki start coming down out of the sky. Someone gets possessed by the god out of the statue. And they immediately get to start fighting monsters and going insane. And that's the thing that's, that people... Yep, they came that's the do, core right. experience. Now, Call of Cthulhu, because it is a magnificent game, delivers a million different experiences. But the real core, the thing that no one... The people who haven't played your game yet want to do is fight monsters and go crazy. Yep. That's why they are playing Call of Cthulhu. Right. Right. They, they, they don't know that there's other reasons yet. And, and it's is, like in, in Champions. That's if exactly. I'm playing Champions, what I want to do is I want to beat the living crap out of Doctor. I want to punch some bad right? guys. Exactly. And the fact that you can do all kinds of other shit in Champions is irrelevant. If I show up and there's a scenario in which um, uh, we're not fighting Doctor Doom, I'm like, come on! <laughs> yeah. Gotta fight Doctor Doom! <laughs> Where is he? Where is he? He's looking behind <laughs> bushes. <laughs> <or> <laughs> The flip side of this is, in addition to being a selling thing, this thinking about that as a game designer is a great way to hone your pitch. Right. Because these, if you don't know what that selling point is, if you don't know what it is that's getting people excited about your game, you probably need to figure that out. Yeah, what the core activity of your yeah. game is, so, what it is the players are doing during those hours. So we got ten minutes left. Let's get if there's questions, let's get brisk questions and brisk answers. Yep. Uh, and if as someone jumps and gives an answer, but someone else wants to add to it, just like note somehow so we know. Uh, let's start with you. And if you want, raise your hands, but go. Um, you had you had said something about bangs and kickers, and you defined bangs, and you never went back. Oh, kickers! Kickers, kickers are just uh, I I tried to mention that it's just um, elements that are built into the character. Right, so things that things that the character wants, things that the character uh, is is going to have to deal with, but not because they're confronted with it, but because that's an internal element of, of the character. So it's you know what the character wants. Awesome. Harder again to build into a published scenario. Right. Right. But and it, common it, scenarios where you're using pregens. Yeah. Perfect. perfect. And yes. obviously for your home game, super easy. Right. And I know uh, I mentioned the Paizo style guide. Sometimes they have like a list of kickers. They don't call them that, but basically the same thing. And then they say, here's a bunch of options, and uh, if these don't fit, pick one that seems similar. Sorry, Ken. No? No, go ahead. Um, How much, I I might have missed this, but how much do you consider showcasing mechanics whenever you design a scenario, Uh, if at all? If you are showcasing mechanics more than the adventure, then there's something wrong in the entire equation. But that said, if one of the selling points of your game is this cool mechanic, right. then you should write the you scenario so it. that that cool mechanic takes takes a spotlight moment, even if it's not the whole game doesn't become about how awesome is my sword fighting table. Yeah. But if one of the things that you do in the game, right, like let's say Wraith, for example, one of the, the cool mechanics in Wraith is that at some point the player next to you gets to play your evil half and tempt you to do something stupid. 
Now, if you're designing a scenario for, for Wraith, you should have that happen. Because it is fundamentally annoying gameplay, it should not be the focus of the, of the scenario. <laughs> but because it is a core flavor mechanic, it should happen. Right. And I guess that's yeah. that's my question. And, and, and so, depending on how awesome as gameplay your core mecha- your your fun mechanic is, that would be how much you should make it the centerpiece of the scenario. Right. And, and so I think the fact that Wraith may have these excellent rules for insert skill here, that doesn't mean you need to showcase that since that's not. Because right. my core experience. Yeah. yeah, hopefully your game has excellent rules, excellent mechanics for whatever that core activity is. If you've got a swashbuckling game, you better have excellent yeah. sword fighting and mechanics. Again, like the fun mechanic is indeed beating the crap out of Dr. Doom. Right. The core experience is beating the crap out of Dr. Doom. The game works. Yes. And awesome. we have good rules on yes. how to punch. But the thing is, yes. if, you're, if you're putting a, a scenario in the ultimate uh, shapeshifter, Right. The the scenario that should, should show off the thing that you exactly. added yep. to champions that makes shape shifting even better. Right. Right. Cool. And it's like, here's how you do that. Awesome. Lots of lots of keywords. Uh, you guys give like one example of a post scenario that you think is an exemplary of like what you've been talking about. Savage Worlds Fifty Fathoms. It is a the introductory point for a lot of people to Savage Worlds plot point model. Uh, it basically is a campaign setting and an adventure. Uh, it introduces a good uh, motivating plot with a thread through line uh, that is not mandatory to follow, but is present and consistent, is open-ended enough to give you a sandbox experience while still driving towards driving play. I'm sold. <laughs> Masks of Nirlathotep. It's where I learned about the ticking clock, it's where I learned about the villain's agenda, it's where I learned about the difference between dungeon crawl and uh, uh, wander all over the map like an idiot. Every, I mean, it, it's it's basically every possible answer to that question of constraints is answered differently in each of the sub-scenarios and answered well. And so when I look at Master of the Author, it's like a master class, and it was done in, what, 84 or something like that by Larry Dottilio and Lynn Willis. And I I look at that, and it's still great game design. It holds up today. You could run as published, not even the the, the expanded mass that they did in 2006. You could could run that out of the box, and it would still be better than 99% of other game, other full campaigns, certainly. Uh, that you that you could run. It's a phenomenal piece of work, and it's ever inspiring. Awesome. Any of the mini scenarios out of Strike Force by Aaron Alston, mm-hmm. where he uh, where he yes. takes you through the process? I mean, not only is each one brilliantly designed, but it also includes uh, you know like his notes for yeah, for why it is this way. Yeah. For it, if if you're looking for something to learn from instructionally from it, you know, read Aaron's notes on why he made these scenarios this way. Uh, and it's a master class of doing it. Bill? Uh, well, I've got to mention Strike Force. <laughs> oh, no! Sorry. It sucks to be you. <laughs> well, that just reinforces the fact, yes, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Strike Force is really good. Um, so, two votes uh, for Strike Force, one for Master yeah, yeah, one for New Fathom, Strike Force, obviously the best campaign ever. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> uh, That's a pretty good damn list. Any other questions? What is the sort of least you can provide the GM and the players structurally that will get them through... You know, a, a four or five scene scenario. Front. Um, it, the, so, the, it, talking about setting design, uh, sorry, adventure design as technology, uh, dungeons were the first form of technology to create a constrained environment that still had enough flexibility in it. And there have been other technologies, plot points, hard and soft scenes, uh, the SAS system, uh, railroads are actually kind of a technological system that. Um, fronts and uh, randomly generated tables 
basically throw in just enough elements for you to hook into, things you have to be aware of, so you can go, oh, pull that, pull that, pull that, and go. What's a front? A front is a technique from Apocalypse World where you basically keep a list of all the things that are going on, basically all of the ticking time bombs in the setting. And when it comes time for you to run something, you can pick from that one, that one, put them together, and you got something good. Well, thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you. I've looked every couple of years and the hero doesn't own the rights to it anymore. Uh, All of Aaron's stuff is his own. What kind of game is Strength Force? It's a superhero. Something for champions. Champions from back Um, in the. And basically, basically and it's brilliant in that it is half the the actual adventure scenarios and half just notes an explanation. And why, you know, Aaron explaining why blue booking is a good idea. I have a copy. I will, like, photocopy. I was going to say, yeah, I've got a copy. I've got a couple of copies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Sure. Because I, I read it years and years ago. Yeah, we couldn't we could never physically. The, the rights for all of Aaron's stuffs reverted to him before we took over Hero. So uh, we never had the rights to recreate the game. Gotcha. Right. Now we worked out several individual right. deals with him personally, <laughs> but he never wanted to give up Strike Force. Because that was his thing. Yes. That was his home campaign. But it was just sad. He's sad that that was not more. I just wanted to quickly run down the thing you guys. Thanks for coming. It's time to We are aware of it. Thank you for coming. It was really great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, call me, Rob. Or email me or yeah. something. Yeah, I'll worry about it. We'll set something up here. This seminar recording was made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and the Metatopia Convention Organizing Team, Double Exposure. All of the Double Exposure conventions are amazing, and I can't speak highly enough of Metatopia as a convention for designers to meet up, to discuss, to test, and to learn more about this lovely hobby of ours. You can find out more at www.dexposure.com. And I hope you'll join us next year at Metatopia.